Hello everybody, it's Martin Keenan here again and today we're going to be talking to Dr Valeria Fabre who's Associate Professor of Medicine at Johns Hopkins where her area of expertise is infectious diseases. She's Associate Medical Director of the Antimicrobial Stewardship Programme and also an Associate Hospital Epidemiologist there. But the reason we're going to be talking to her today is she's just been lead author of a paper published in Infection Control and Hospital Epidemiology on a practical guide to diagnostic stewardship. So that's what we're talking to her about today. So welcome, Valeria, and thank you very much for sparing me the time. Oh, thank you. My pleasure. Okay, so diagnostic stewardship, to me, when I started out in infection prevention, it was always something that the laboratory did. They tried to get the best out of the specimen that we sent them. But of course, now we're getting to the fact that there's, there's far more to it that. So can I ask you to talk about what's the background to this paper and why you felt at Shea that practical guidelines were actually required? Yes, absolutely. Um, so uh, that, that is true. Um, you know, most uh, might view diagnostic stewardship as something that uh, belongs to, to the laboratory. And uh, uh, obviously, it has addressed uh, laboratory tests within infectious diseases, but, you know, also in other uh, areas, such as, um, you know, a good use of the dimer or, you know, good use of other common tests that we order in, in patients. And we realized that actually, uh, you know, diagnostic stewardship can be performed by uh, people outside of the lab, both um, by, you know, what we call prescribers. So, you know, uh, physicians and advanced practice practitioners, uh, nurses, and, and really anyone who's at the bedside uh, caring for patients. And so, um, you know, a, a big area of, of interest to me is uh, antibiotic stewardship. And uh, several years ago, I was working on, a, um, on an initiative at my hospital to improve um, the uh, utilization of urine cultures because um, that was one of the main drivers of inappropriate antibiotic use at my institution, and that happens to be the case in many other institutions in the United States and, uh, mm. and elsewhere. And so um, we realized that, uh, you know, most of those decisions were, you know, happening at the bedside, many, many times, you know, not necessarily involving the physicians, you know, many other times the physicians were involved, but we realized that there was really a big need to improve how we utilize common uh, microbiologic cultures. And so uh, we realized that there were opportunities not only at the time of reviewing the indication for a culture, but also opportunities to improve how clinicians interpret a result um, you know, we know that um, many of our colleagues who are not trained in infectious diseases uh, struggle with interpreting a, a positive um, of, you <laughs> yeah. know, culture uh, yeah. and, um, you know, understanding what's the difference between different levels of growth and uh, what's the difference between colonization or contamination and a true infection. So we we started to work on uh, all these different steps within what we call the, the diagnostic pathway of a test and realized that there were so many, you know, steps in this pathway that we need to integrate the bedside providers and uh, laboratory and, and, and get these different groups, you know, closer and, and working together on, on improving some of these practices. 
It's interesting you say that the nurses were making the decision. So the nurses would send a culture without necessarily referring to a, phys- a physician. So that that would actually be pretty much similar here in the UK. And of course, I, I, interestingly, I was out of the country last weekend and I saw a, a, a poster from an, a hospital in the UK that I used to work in showing that the nurses were generating the specimens. The clinical information provided to the lab was almost always inadequate and it was just going down as things like urine. They wouldn't even specify what the specimen was. And that makes it very difficult, doesn't it, for the lab to work with because they only get what they get. And there used to be the saying, rubbish in, rubbish out. You know, if, if that's what you've got to work with and you haven't got any information, how on earth do they interpret what they're seeing? So is, was that the similar sort of picture that you were seeing? Yes, exactly. That was exactly right. And um, as I got to work in, in diagnostic stewardship, for example, an area of, of um, interest to me is diagnostic stewardship around blood cultures. And uh, there are uh, lots of improvements, you know, for the physicians who are the ones that almost always make the decision to order a blood culture. And depending on the on the unit, they might might be the ones involved in collecting the blood cultures. Mm-hmm. Um, and so some of the aspects that I got to, to work with them on uh, were obviously to improve indications for blood cultures, but also uh, I addressed many misconceptions that I was not aware that existed, you know, among uh, my non-ID colleagues, right? And yeah. so. Uh, Exactly. So what, what misconceptions were you able to address then? Well, for example, we did many focus groups and we found that uh, some of our colleagues in uh, the intensive care unit uh, were not aware of the importance of obtaining two sets uh, for adult patients. And they you know, perceived that uh, not knowing the importance of the two sets on, on, uh, on the sensitivity of blood cultures, Many times they were allowing or going for one set uh, because they know it's painful for patients. Uh, many of ICU patients, uh, it's hard to get a blood culture because they are very edematous, and uh, it's it's fine to you know hard to find that um, that site for for peripheral venipuncture. Uh, mm-hmm. And so those were some some of the examples of um, uh, you know some of the misconceptions that they had. Okay, that's interesting. I mean, it, part of the problem I find it, it, in my own hospital, I used to be quite concerned about the number of contaminated blood cultures, as a lot of them were coming from the emergency room, where I don't think people would take, necessarily take a lot of care because they weren't ever going to see the result anyway, or the patient, again, it was just, let's get a blood culture. And everything I tried to get them to think, let's do a good blood culture here and so that somebody at least when they see the result they're working with something that's going to be useful rather than just a staff or, or you know where did we go with this one that that was a key issue really are, are you having the same sort of issues there where people who take the blood culture aren't necessarily the people who then will be treating the patient and interpreting it yes absolutely absolutely uh, we are a, a large academic institution so there's always someone who's like, you know, leaving the door and a new, you know, a new team is coming uh, through the door. So that that's always a challenge. And um, uh, yes, so that's I think that's a, a common problem, uh, you know, in, in, in most institutions. So how can patients be harmed then by poor diagnostic stewardship? What sort of damage can can be done? Are we talking about misdiagnosis here now, overdiagnosis or, yeah, absolutely. or just misinterpretation? 
Exactly. So it depends on on the type of you know test that we that we are talking about. Some of the things that we discussed uh, so far regarding urine cultures and and blood cultures have to do with you know uh, picking up false positives and uh, you know treating patients with antibiotics for false positive results, which I'm sure the audience is very well. Uh, acquainted what you know what are the issues with inappropriate antibiotic use um not only in terms of resistance but also in terms of address events for patients um and uh, it could also go with as you were saying uh misdiagnosis right so yeah. for example uh, we did a lot of education around fungal markers because there was a lot of misunderstanding of what was the utility of the different fungal markers like beta-diglucan and galactomannan in ruling out invasive fungal infections uh, and not knowing you know, when it's the right time or when it helps you. You might be thinking that there's no fungal infection because the fungal markers are negative when you know we know that these fungal markers are not going to be uh, positive in certain fungal infections. So, it's not it's not always about like doing less, but it's it's more focused on doing it when it's right, right? Doing it yeah, right yeah. when it's right and in the right way. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. I mean, do you have the same sort of issue that many countries also have with people get, would get treated for asymptomatic bacteria just because the the pathology result has grown to microorganisms, but actually the patient may not have much in the way of signs of infection? Absolutely. So we have pushed very hard on this aspect of, you know, if you are looking at a positive urine culture result, the reflex should be to go back to the bedside and ask, you know, try to, to uh, uh, collect that history from the patient or a family member if the patient is not able to, to speak as to, you know, what were the symptoms that might have led to that urine culture or brought the patient. As you were saying, you know, many times they, for example, the urine culture, since we, since we are focusing on that, get ordered in the emergency room and there might not be a necessary, you know, a, an appropriate reason. And if you don't go back to, you know, and ask, uh, you would be just treating positive results for a patient that did not need a urine culture. Mm. And it couldn't even be the technique of actually taking the specimen that can have really messed things up as well. You know, you can you can contaminate a urine as much as you can contaminate a blood culture, I suppose. And that's the issue as well, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. Can I ask you about wound swabs? Do you, do you feel that it's necessary to absolutely describe the type of wound, whether it being a decubitus ulcer or a surgical wound or a... Or, you know, a, a venous leg ulcer or something like that. Do you think that makes much difference to the interpretation there? Because I know in my early days, the laboratory would be trying to interpret what potential pathogens they might see. And with the had when they had certain clinical information, they would maybe look for slightly different organisms, like some, some more obscure streptococci in the case of venous leg ulcers. Would that be the same? Or do you think diagnostics have moved on so that you would pick out the genuine pathogens from any wound swab, regardless of the clinical information? Yeah, I think uh, I have to say that I'm very lucky uh, to work at a place with very strong, a very strong uh, microbiology laboratory. So most of our methods are very sensitive and it, it's quite robust. 
and again, it, it's a very large hospital, so we couldn't be communicating and, and telephone for, for each case. Mm-hmm. Obviously, when we put an order for, you know, a wound culture that gets uh, processed in the micro lab, they will see some clinical information about the patient, but there won't be a, a communication specific, specifically addressing, can you look for, you know, this particular pathogen? We do that when we suspect, for example, if the patient was getting antibiotics and we wanted the lab to hold maybe a culture a little bit longer for an unusual pathogen uh-huh. in those specific circumstances, yes, but not for most of the you know usual bacterial suspected bacterial infections. Yeah. Okay. So, what strategies then are you recommending that could actually improve things? You know, what what can we do to help people produce a better specimen or only take a more appropriate specimen so that we're not doing unnecessary tests, which can result in patient harm, but actually also cost money and produce challenges for antimicrobial resistance as well. In our experience, really, it helps to educate around the need for diagnostic stewardship. So there's, you know, there's the perception that there's no harm associated with, right, for example, getting cultures or ordering a test. And so we have to work on that. Uh, and there's also the perception that maybe if you don't do it, you might be missing something. Mm. And so there's also the need about educating about, you know, the how to use the test, right? Yeah. As we were discussing, when you are assuming that, you know, because you did it, a negative result, the patient doesn't have the infection. As you were saying, for example, in the case of low cultures, a negative result, if you just got one set, to me, you know, that's not reassuring. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So making sure they understand, you know, how, when they should feel appropriately reassured. So knowing how to use the test is, is extremely important. Now, whether you do that, you know, by developing, I think that's part of the challenge too, how to communicate all this information to BC healthcare providers, right? Yeah. And so I think that's where each uh, institution has to work uh, based on, you know, the, their, their local resources, how to best get to um, the frontline providers. So if it's a heavily EMR-based, uh, there's lots of tools that you can implement, such as, you know, best practice alerts or, you know, guidance on the EMR. Uh, if it's, you know, more paper-based, then... I think there's many strategies, but it will depend on where you're working and and who are you know who's your audience. Yeah, I mean, does not everyone wants to see no, no, well, that's true. See the information no, no. the same way. No, right? absolutely, no, like, that's absolutely right. I'm, I was wondering if um, electronic ordering systems for specimens you could build in nudges and questions to actually to make sure people are thinking about it all the way through the process or can they just order a specimen and, and it gets taken regardless can you can you build nudges and uh, and checks and balances into those sort of systems yes absolutely and i think a lot of people have tried that and it has worked i think again uh you have to kind of like know your crew right mm. you know some people like to be told what to do uh, some people get very upset, you know, <laughs> if, if you take a restrictive approach. Yeah. So you ha- and that's why it's important to get a good balance as to you know what's a strategy that will work for most people. Mm-hmm. Yes, EMR tools uh, have been very helpful in, in in most places to you know to help with diagnostic stewardship. Mm. Uh, and what about training for people? You know, because people maybe will get trained in how to take a blood culture. 
And then after a while, they they slip into old habits, and they're more interested in getting it done as quickly as possible. Is is there any system in for for um, checking competence of people taking blood cultures, or do you have teams of people maybe? Because I know we've had some success, some success in the UK where there are designated staff during the day who they will be the ones actually taking the blood cultures, and you, therefore you find these specially trained uh, trained phlebotomists get, get far less uh, in the way of contaminants than people who are, are not well trained. Yes, absolutely. It's uh, consistently it's been shown that if you have a dedicated team, your chances of getting a false positive results are much, much, much lower mm. than you know uh, if people without those skills are are getting the blood cultures. And so there's that. Um, there's uh, obviously uh, lots of you know um, uh, you know back back to the basics uh, kind of uh, elements uh, such as obviously hand hygiene and good skin antisepsis. Uh, that if you don't have a phlebotomy team or like a, a you know a trained uh, team, you can go you know through training that of basic practices that you know would be helpful. I mean, are there any papers um, showing that feedback of contamination rates to departments actually improves practice? Yes, absolutely. I will say that most of the literature uh, evaluates a bundle, right? Uh-huh. So it's 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 hard to find you know a paper that only did one thing, right? So it's usually a couple of things. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes it's hard to, you know, uh, tease out exactly to which one of them the effectiveness was attributed to. Uh, but yes, I, you know, there's uh, there's lots of literature regarding where are some of these, you know, what are the elements that need to be in these prevention bundles mm-hmm. or, you know, contamination reducing bundles, I should say. And feedback is one of them. Yeah, I was wondering if you were regularly monitoring, say, the emergency rooms, contamination rate and then and then suddenly it goes up by two three times and then you go and find you've got a a load of locum or agency staff in and they who haven't been trained that and that can throw things completely out yes absolutely so um until recently the national benchmark for blood culture contamination in the u.s was uh equal or below three percent and uh, at our hospital, we had an internal benchmark of uh, equal or less than 1%. Mm. And very recently, uh, CLSI uh, has uh, updated their recommendations and has lowered the benchmark to equal or less than 1%. Right. So for a very long time, we've been measuring blood cultural contamination, not only in the emergency room, but uh, in, all, in all inpatient units. And we feedback this data back to unit leadership, including obviously nursing and physician leadership. And everyone is very well aware of where they are. And uh, if obviously they are above the target, then uh, we, we reach out to see, you know, what are some of the struggles, what are some of the issues, and then specifically for phlebotomy, so for the, this uh, group of people who are trained, and that's the only thing they do. Many places are, or many units are doing individual uh, level feedback. Oh, uh, well, okay. Right? Yeah, so, yeah. So exactly, exactly, to understand, you know. Um, and so there's uh, there's lots of things that can be done. Obviously, what I said, you know, we can only do it because we have, you know, the, the, the resources, like someone is pulling the data for us. And, yeah. you know, we can share the data. Yeah. So exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, and, and finally, I'm not so worried about the financial cost of the institution if it's the right thing. But actually, there are cost implications of inappropriate specimens. 
uh, and then the knock-on effect on the patients. Has anyone done any work on the cost effectiveness of diagnostic stewardship? And therefore, say, for example, you wanted to bring in a bundle and you wanted to bring in a blood culture collection pack, which might cost a few more dollars to actually implement the pack, but you would be able to make savings. Would you be able to demonstrate savings or are there any studies demonstrating savings by implementing this sort of program? Yeah, absolutely. So the, the um, paper guidance that you mentioned at the beginning of, uh, of this call uh, is actually the first one of a series. Ah. So yes, so there will be other ones that will be coming specifically addressing, for example, the, the impact of diagnostic stewardship in HAIs in antibiotic use and so what, probably you will see that type of data summarized in the topic specific papers that are going to come out mm-hmm. i can tell you that yes there is already data again depending on the for example if you're looking for blood culture contamination specific ones that that data exists it, you know it might not be there for things that are less usual less common mm. I have to be honest that we didn't want to put a lot of emphasis on cost no. uh, reduction when we wrote the paper because we didn't want to we didn't want pe- people to feel that you know diagnostic stewardship it's about cost reduction. Mm. Uh, we really wanted to you know emphasize that uh, it, it's about patient outcomes sure. and patient safety with obviously this secondary advantage of. The, the more appropriate you use your hospital resources, right? Yeah. The most, uh, the more cost-effective uh, care becomes. Yeah, I was more thinking. I was more thinking of trying to make a case for investment in a change in practice. Uh, would that be necessary? Yes. Would that help with that? That's what I was really thinking. So yes, absolutely, and I think that's important. I just wanted to to uh, um, uh, make the comment of why maybe there's not a lot of like cost mentioned in that particular paper. But okay. absolutely agree that exactly in order for you to build, you know, a program or, you know, implement initiatives, yeah. it has to make sense. Okay, that's wonderful. Well, thank you very much. I've really enjoyed reading the paper. As you, as it says in the title, it's a very practical guide. There's a lot of advice on strategies you can use, like nudging, like the, the form of prescribing you do, like the training you might need to do. And it's very, it's a very you know, nicely accessible paper that will be applicable to hospitals all around the world, I think, because everybody has exactly the same sort of problems. So uh, I, I really appreciate you spending a bit of time with me just to have a little chat about this important issue. Great. Thank you for having me in your program. Okay. And everybody, I'll see you on the next episode of Infectious Control Matters. Thanks for joining.